with that. We want everyone to know the, the blessings of what we have been uh, singing about. Uh, it's been said already that I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you did too. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you overindulged because this morning I'm preaching about fasting. <laughs> good, good timing, isn't it? Uh, wonderful timing. Couldn't think of a better topic uh, for uh, today, but don't worry. It isn't perhaps what you might fear uh, that it is. We don't usually think about Jesus as being annoying, but I think he was to an awful lot of people in his own day. Uh, I don't think he deliberately was, except occasionally with the Pharisees. I think he, he kind of deliberately annoyed them. I think he went out of his way to poke holes in some of their hypocrisy uh, and to sort of deliberately provoke them and try to provoke them into thinking. But he annoyed people simply because he was so radically different from anyone they'd ever seen before. And they didn't quite know what to do with him, and, and so he rubbed them the wrong way. Get an example of this in Matthew chapter 9. This is just before our scripture reading this morning, verses 9 to 13, when he called a tax collector to become one of his disciples. Now, people in general despise tax collectors, and so for Jesus to call one of these people uh, was an affront uh, to uh, decent folk was the way that they would have looked at it. But not only did he call this tax collector to be his disciple, but he then began to make a habit of eating with people like that and, and with other kinds of sinners as well. And so he was frequently found in the company of what others would have considered the wrong kinds of people. So he would do things that people did not like. He did things that no self-respecting Pharisee would ever do. And then he also had the audacity to declare that God was more interested in mercy than he was in ritual sacrifices. God wanted mercy more than sacrifice. And he quoted the Old Testament prophets to that effect. And that, that irritated people because they'd overlooked that. And they didn't like having it pointed out to him. So he did things that no self-respecting Pharisee would ever do. And he said that God had sent him not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And they just didn't know what to do with that. So that was shocking to a lot of people. It was offensive to a lot of people. But sometimes it was the things Jesus didn't do that upset people and annoyed them. And you get an example of that in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. The episode begins with a question asked by John's disciples. Now, pay attention to that phrase, John's disciples. Remember that John had come preaching before Jesus. We're not sure exactly how long before, but he had come preaching before Jesus, and he had gathered a loyal following, and some of that loyal following thought that John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so they began to follow him uh, in that way and to think of him that way. Even after Jesus came and was baptized John, by John, these disciples of John continued to give their loyalty to John rather than to Jesus. And we get several indications of that uh, in the Gospels. Look, for example, at Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. When John heard from prison about Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask, are you he who is to come, or should we look, to, look for another? 
So John has his disciples who are still gathered around him, even when he is in Herod's prison facing death. After John was beheaded, his disciples came and took the body and went and told Jesus, Matthew 14 and verse 12. In Luke 11, verse 1, Jesus' own disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So there was a, a distinct group of people known as John's disciples. And it may be that they saw Jesus and his disciples as something of a rival group. There might have been a bit of tension there. But they come to him then with this question, why uh, do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do, do not fast? Now, their question tells you a lot about them. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Notice the we and the Pharisees. They align themselves with the Pharisees. Now, we can't be certain, but in saying that, it makes it sound as though they accepted the Pharisees' practice of fasting. And the Pharisees' practice of fasting was to fast twice a week. Remember Jesus' parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector? One of the ways that the Pharisee congratulated himself as he prayed to God was he said, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. You think, well, that's twice as often as the law required. No, that's way more than that. The law required only one fast every year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Just that one fast. But a lot of people fasted every week as a matter of personal devotion to God. And that was fine. But the Pharisee says, well, we're double devoted, so we're going to fast twice a week. So when John's disciples say, we and the Pharisees, it gives you the impression that they had bought in to the Pharisees' practice of fasting twice a week. Some manuscripts of Matthew 9 and verse 14, by the way, say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So here's what they wanted to know. Why hasn't Jesus taught his disciples the prevailing Jewish tradition? Because the Pharisees were kind of the gold standard of Jewish piety in that day. So why hasn't Jesus if he is so close to God, if he's been sent by the Father, why isn't he teaching his disciples to do what these people who are so devout are doing? In fact, they didn't fast at all. Not only did they not fast twice a week or once a week, they didn't fast at all. And so their question is, why do your disciples not fast like we do, like the Pharisees do? Now, to us, we might think, well, that's kind of a minor issue, whether you fast or not. It wasn't to a first-century Jew, because there were three marks of personal devotion to a Jew in first-century Palestine. One was fasting. One was prayer. One was giving to the poor. This didn't have anything to do with what you did at the temple. It didn't have anything to do with what you did at the great festivals. This was just your personal devotion to God. You fasted, you prayed, you gave to the poor. And so for Jesus' disciples to not fast, and for him not to teach his disciples to, was a radical departure from Jewish practice. It would have been the equivalent of their not praying or not attending the synagogue in the eyes of their contemporaries. So it's a serious question. Why 
do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Well, Jesus answers that question by telling three very short parables. Now, you may not have thought of these as parables, and a lot of people don't think of them as parables for one reason, because they are so brief. And another reason is they're not stories, and we're accustomed to thinking of parables as stories. But remember that a parable simply is a comparison between two things. The word literally means to lay two things alongside of one another. You lay them alongside of one another to compare them. So Jesus lays some things alongside to compare them in order to answer this question. The first parable is itself a question. Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, remember that in the world of Jesus' day, weddings were a really big deal, and they involved major feasting that often lasted for a week or even longer. You know, we think some of the weddings we go to are big deals, but their weddings were enormous. And you look at uh, some of the parables of Jesus, such as the parable of the wedding garment and the parable of the ten virgins, and you see that reflected with that, uh, that uh, feasting that went on. And so Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? By the way, wedding guest here literally means, or literally says, sons of the bridal hall. That would be people like the best man and the groomsman, as we would think of, the people who had planned the whole event, the people who were kind of in charge of everything. Can those people mourn while the bridegroom is still there? Can they mourn while the festivities are going on? Are they going to sit over in a corner with long, groupy faces while everybody else is feasting, while the party's going on? What's Jesus' implication is that that wouldn't make any sense. That would have been unnatural. It would have been unthinkable. And here's Jesus' point. Why should his men, why should his men engage in a ritual of mourning when they're just beginning to discover who he really is? Why should they be mourning when he is with them? Why should they be mourning when the party is in full swing? And then a shadow kind of falls over everything. When Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. Notice the taken away. Not that he goes away. He's going to be taken away. He's talking about his death. The days will coming when he, the bridegroom, is taken away from them. And in those days, then they will mourn. Then they will have a good reason to mourn. Now, John's disciples already had a reason to mourn. Because back in Matthew 4, in verse 12, you read that John had been locked away in Herod's prison. And before very long, John would be put to death. They had good reason to mourn. The one that they believed in, was about to leave them. But not so with Jesus' disciples. They were basking in the joy of being in the presence of the one they believed in, being in the presence of the one that they had left everything for. He was with them. And Jesus says, would it make any sense for them 
to mourn. Now, the other two parables are based on the common, on common observation, but they've raised a lot of questions in people's minds. What do they mean? Jesus says, nobody sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because then when you wash the garment, the new cloth, the new patch shrinks. The old garment doesn't because it's been washed and washed and washed. And so the, old, the patch shrinks and it makes a worse tear than it was supposed to fix. He said nobody's going to do that. And he says in the same way, nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. New wine was wine that was not fermented yet. And if you put unfermented grape juice into a wineskin that is old, the skin has done all the stretching it's going to do. And you fill it with that new wine, and then that begins to ferment and give off those gases, and, and that skin's going to explode. And you're going to lose the wine and you're going to lose the skin. So Jesus said nobody would do that. Now, that's what Jesus says, but he doesn't make any application of it. He doesn't offer any explanation of it. So, so what do these two little parables mean? Well, go back to the fasting issue. Jesus was being criticized for not enforcing the tradition with his disciples and for eating with the wrong people, healing on the Sabbath and a host of other offenses. Jesus and his kingdom are the new wine. Jesus and his kingdom are the new cloth. And Judaism is the old garment and the old skin. And what Jesus is getting at is that if people insist on just adding him in to the forms that Judaism already knows, there's going to be a disaster. If they just try to overlay him onto rituals like fasting and all the other stuff that they, were, that they were so hung up on that they saw as being so important, then the whole thing was going to be ruined. Judaism was going to be destroyed in and of itself. There was simply no way for the rituals of official Judaism to contain the new thing that God was doing through Jesus. It spelled disaster for Judaism. Now, by failing to recognize that new thing, John's disciples and the Pharisees were not worshiping the God who wanted to redeem them. They thought they were, but they really weren't. What they were doing was worshiping their own past. See, they were worshiping their own past. They're just worshiping the tradition. They're not worshiping God. That's what happens when you worship tradition. You're just worshiping your own past. Now, I know that all this is kind of strange territory for us. We're not really caught up in the rituals of Judaism. So do these three parables have anything to say to us? And in fact, they do. You might have to think about them, but in fact, they do. First of all, they, they are a warning to us. A warning to us to rely closely on God's word and not on our own past, not on tradition. That is always a danger that God's people face. Just because something is deeply rooted in our thinking does not mean it is deeply rooted in Scripture. We have to come to terms with that. It may have been embedded in us from childhood, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. We ought to always be comparing things with what does Scripture actually say. 
unless we become misled in some way. Let me give you an example of that. A few decades ago, there were lots of folks in the church who were teaching that the Holy Spirit only has one avenue by which he works, and that's through the pages of Scripture. And so the working of the Spirit was you or me reading the Bible and doing what the Bible says, and that was the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I even knew of some people who would hold up the Bible and say, this is the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There is nothing else to the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Now, why did they do that? Well, they had been engaged in debates uh, with people who believed in all kinds of miraculous spiritual gifts, and they were trying to find a way to root out those excesses, and so they just kind of shrunk the whole thing down to it's, it's just Scripture. And the only way that the Spirit ever works is through Scripture. And so they talked about word only. Spirit works in the word only. But there was a problem with that. That's not what Scripture said. Scripture never did say that. It was a position that people came to because they found it useful. But Scripture never said it. You heard in the reading this morning from Romans 8, verse 13. If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is Paul saying? He's saying that there's some things that, that go on with us, some spiritual problems, some sins, some things we struggle with that we don't have the power to put to death, but the spirit within us does. Spirit within us does. That's why he says in Romans 8, if you don't have the spirit of God within you, then you do not have life. A little further down in Romans 8, 26, he said, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with longings too deep for words. Folks, the Bible does not do that. The Bible does not intercede for us. The Spirit of God intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Ephesians 3 and verse 16, Paul prayed that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The Holy Spirit is in you to give you strength to be the person God has called you to be, to become like Jesus. Now, Scripture is involved in all those things. Scripture is involved in putting to death the deeds of the body. Scripture is involved in the Spirit interceding for us. Scripture is involved in strengthening us. But the Spirit has other ways of working also, as most folks now realize. But for a long time, our understanding of the Spirit and His work was badly stunted. And I don't know how many times I had people tell me in the church, been in the church all their lives, who said, you know, I've never had any teaching about the Holy Spirit or all the teaching I've heard is about what the Spirit doesn't do. Nothing about what the Spirit does. See what traditions will do? They cause us to worship the past. They cause us to worship our own thinking. But they keep us from seeing what God is saying. You see... God isn't going to do a new thing in the world, Scripture says. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say that. We are in the last days, meaning that God has made his final revelation through his Son, and his word in Scripture will always be our guide. But it won't be if we let human traditions interfere. So just as John's disciples were letting the Jewish rituals interfere, 
of fasting obscure their understanding of who Jesus was, if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake. There's a warning in these parables. Don't, don't fast while the bridegroom's with you. and Don't try to sew new cloth on, on an old garment. Don't put new wine in old skins. You'll just ruin the whole thing. Second thing is, this, these parables show that fasting is an option for Christians, but not an obligation. Once you get that distinction, it is an option, but not an obligation. We need to get clear on this because a lot of times Christians get confused about it. And they come to think that you're not really a Christian unless you fast, or that you are more of a Christian if you do, or that you're more spiritual than Christians who don't. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said that it's inappropriate while the bridegroom is with us to fast. There would be a time for mourning when he died, but as long as the bridegroom is with them, they, should, they don't need to fast. They ought not to fast. Isn't he with us now? Scripture says that he is. He's with us again. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what? Lo, I am with you always until the close of the age. He's with us. When we partook of the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago, what were we doing? We were communing with each other, yes, but we were also communing with our risen Lord. We are communing with him. He is with us. Scripture shows only one occasion when Jesus himself fasted. That's recorded in Scripture, at least, and that's when he was in the wilderness being tested. There are only three references in the book of Acts, in the story of the early church. If, if it were an obligation, we'd expect to find it over and over and over. There's only three references, and they all have to do with special appointments to ministry. Acts 9, when Saul becomes Paul the apostle. Acts 13, 1, when Paul and Barnabas are being set apart as the Holy Spirit directed for the work to which he had called them, the Gentile mission. The church fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them. And then Acts 14, verse 23, with the appointment of elders in all the churches, there was fasting. Fasting is never mentioned a single time in the New Testament letters. Not one single time. In all those letters teaching us ways to follow Jesus, how to follow Jesus, fasting is never mentioned as one of them. What do we conclude about that? That fasting is a bad thing? No, it's something that Christians may do. It's just something that we're not required to do. It's a good thing if we desire it for some special purpose, if it helps us focus our attention, if it helps us get closer to God in some way, uh, if it helps us to put away the thoughts of this world for a period of time and to focus on God and, and on our spiritual need, if we are in mourning about our sins, it's a fine thing to do, but it is not an obligation. And we should not think of ourselves as more spiritual than people who don't do it. These parables of Jesus teach us that fasting is an option, not an obligation. Third thing they teach us is that disciples, as disciples of Jesus, we're to live with a spirit of joy. 
Jesus expected his disciples to, and he expects us as his disciples to do the same thing. Why joy? Because he was with them. Because he's with us. They didn't need any other reason to be joyful. His presence superseded everything else, even their trials and their suffering. How were they able to rejoice in the face of suffering? Because he was there, and they knew it. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 41, after being beaten and charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Don't you love that spirit? They'd been beaten. They'd been threatened. Don't you do this anymore. Don't you say that anymore. They said, we're going to do it anyway. So they beat them up. They will teach you. And then they go out saying, isn't that great? We've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Who did that put them in company with? Oh, just some minor league people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and all the great ones of the Old Testament. They'd been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In Acts 13, verse 52, after the Jews of Antioch rejected the gospel and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, Scripture says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they were being persecuted? No. Because Christ was with them when they were being persecuted. They didn't enjoy the sufferings any more than you and I would. But they didn't stop rejoicing because Christ was with them. Later, Paul wrote that we should rejoice always. Why? Because being faithful to Christ, we're going to need that joy in the face of opposition. That is sure to come to us. If you're living faithfully for Jesus Christ, you will experience opposition, maybe overt persecution. So what do you do? Do you wring your hands? Do you whine about it? Or do you rejoice? Because Christ is with you, we need that joy to face that. It isn't a time for hand-wringing or complaining because we're in the presence of the one who loved us and gave himself to die for us. The bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is wherever we are. So we ought to rejoice. And then the fourth thing that we're, we learn from these parables is that Jesus' coming was not to patch up Judaism and make it better. He didn't come to do a renovation job. He didn't come to do a repair job. He didn't come to patch it. He came to make it completely new. He did not come to add new cloth to an old garment. He did not come to pour some new wine into the old skins that had been in place for centuries. Rather, he came for a complete renewal and fulfillment of the hopes that were upheld by the Jewish faith. He came to make the whole thing new. He came to transform it. But to accomplish that, the old forms had to go and be replaced by the new. That's why this business of fasting and don't associate with this person or that person and don't do this and don't do that and be sure that you follow all these ritual rules that they'd made up and wash your hands in a certain way, a certain number of times, in certain conditions. Jesus said, all that's nonsense. Don't eat this, don't that. That's got to go, he said. Why? Because it was keeping people 
from seeing what God was really doing. In the last week of his life, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. And one of the first things he did was go to the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers that he found there in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And he drove out the animal sellers. And he said, God said, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of robbers. You're like a bunch of thieves. You carry on your, your business and then, and then you come hide out here thinking that makes everything okay. And somewhere along the line, somebody called that the cleansing of the temple and the name has stuck ever since. And it's totally, totally false. He was not cleansing the temple. He was not purifying it. He was not repairing it. He was not trying to make it more suitable. He was saying, God is done with this. It's over. It's finished. This old system of sacrifices and all that goes on here is over with. The feast days, the sacrifices, the whole bit has now been fulfilled in God's son. And do you know what the temple is now? It's you. It's you and it's me because his spirit lives in us. We are the temple of the spirit, God's word says. And those promises that Jesus made were fulfilled in all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, who, who have faith in Jesus. That's what Paul says is the real faith of Abraham, is to have faith in Jesus. And so all of those rigid forms that they had constructed that so many people in the world just couldn't get past, Jesus said, these have to go. It's sad that so many believers in Jesus still focus on the temple. There's a lot of folks around who still talk about, oh, well, one day the temple's going to be rebuilt, and then that's going to be the center of the world. What in the world are you talking about? You and I are that temple. Scripture says so. We don't need a rebuilt building somewhere. We don't need to flock to one geographical location. God has come to us. And we have life because of Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth than to put the focus on a material building. Jesus didn't come just to patch up Judaism. And let me tell you something else. He didn't come just to patch up your life or mine either. He didn't come just to make a few changes. He didn't come to give us a new habit on Sunday mornings. He came to transform us to give us new life. That's why he said to Nicodemus, you must be born anew. You've got to be born again. Totally shocked Nicodemus. See, he's thinking in the terms of all those things that John's disciples were thinking in. And he comes to Jesus, you know, in kind of a pious, devout way. He says, we know your teacher come from God. And, you know, and Jesus looks at him and says, you've got to be born again. And it just blew his mind. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to think. He didn't even know what to say. God wants to change you and your life. Don't try sowing a new patch on your old sinful life. Don't try to pour the new wine of Jesus into your old skin. 
rather receive the new life that Jesus gives and rejoice in his presence always, starting today, when you confess your faith in him and are baptized into him and his spirit comes to live within you and makes you a new person. That hasn't happened to you yet. It can today. Let's stand together and sing.